Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You should celebrate yourself every day. But some days, you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. You're listening to the Circe Podcast Network. I'm Joshua Gibbs, and this is Proverbial, the podcast where we explore the wisdom of the ages as it comes to us in Proverbs, by which I mean wise sayings a man may live by, if he's not so arrogant as to think himself special. Episode 101, Fly As Fast As You Can. Today's proverb comes from Menander. I'll read it twice. He whom the gods love dies young. Once more. He whom the gods love dies young. This is probably a saying you have heard before. But it's not a saying you would ever repeat to someone even if you thought they needed to hear it. Because this is about children dying. There are not many proverbs out there about children dying. This is the only one that comes to mind. It's a proverb we hear in movies and books and catch allusions to in other works of literature. But it's not something you would ever say to anyone. It is, however, a thing you would think to yourself, not on the death of a friend's child, but on the potential death of your own child. This is a proverb I say to myself when my children are very sick. When you worry about your children dying, you may repeat this proverb to yourself, or you might simply think thoughts along the same lines without ever actually invoking he whom the gods love dies young. And the thoughts that would go along with this are a recognition of what is included in life. What is life taken altogether? If you have a child who's 10 
and you are afraid that that child may die. You begin thinking of all the standard experiences of life beyond the age of 10 that the child will not experience. Now, when you start thinking of all that a 10-year-old would never experience if they died at 10, there are some very wonderful things that a child would miss out on. But if you're being honest with yourself, there are a lot of miserable things a child would miss out on dying young as well. This proverb can be taken two ways. On the one hand, it can be taken as a religious saying, and we can take the gods at face value. Or as Christians, we can assume that the gods, quote unquote, translates or is easily replaced by the true God, he whom the true God loves, die young. And if we take it in that way, it becomes very sentimental. If we take this to be a religious theological claim, it becomes very sentimental very quickly. So sentimental, I might say it's kitschy. The same way that it's kitschy to explain to a child that God is crying when it rains or that God is bowling when it thunders. These are sort of ridiculous claims. You would make them to a child, perhaps, I wouldn't, but someone might say that to a child. You might tell a child who is very worried about thunder or terrified of thunder, oh, it's only God bowling. You might tell the noble lie to a child about such a thing. And that might be debatably allowable. I think it's a, it's a goofy thing to do. But you would say that to a child. You would never tell an adult who had a phobia of thunder, oh, that's just God bowling. No adult would take that seriously. Which is why I don't think that the kitschy religious reading, the sentimental reading of this quote is proper. And really, the kitschy sentimental reading is, God just wants to meet you so badly, or God wanted to meet your child so badly. He just couldn't wait the requisite 78 years to meet your child face to face. So, I know leukemia is a, is a rough way to go, but... That was really just God calling your child home because he couldn't wait because your child is so special. If you ever were to say this to somebody, I would be willing to bet that of all the times last year where one human being said this to another human being whose child had died, it was meant in a kitschy, sentimental sort of way. But the saying is very different, I believe, when you tell it to yourself because your own child is sick and you're worried that your child will die. I don't know that this proverb is actually a theological claim. And to repeat an, an assertion I have made on previous uh, shows, I don't believe that any proverb that references God is actually speaking of God. Because a claim about God is a theological claim, whereas proverbs have to be understood as common sense. So any proverb about God that is meant to be taken on a theological level is not a proverb, it's a dogma, right? The Nicene Creed is not a series of proverbs about God. It's a dogmatic, it's a theologically dogmatic formula. 
And God doesn't give with both hands is not a claim that's made metaphysically, which is why there's a way, and I did an episode on this show a while back, there's a way in which even a atheist can hear God doesn't give with both hands and nod his head in assent to what is meant by it. It's a rational, reasonable assessment of the way that talents and gifts tend to develop in individual human lives. Or God helps those who help themselves. Not a proverb about God. Which is why an atheist could say it, and a Christian could say it, and they could mean something very similar. He whom the gods love dies young. Is a proverb like, God doesn't give with both hands. It's a rational claim. Proverbs are about experiences. Proverbs are reasonable. They are reflections of how the world works, how people think, how most people behave. Now, most proverbs reflect a very sober, qualified, apprehensive assessment of this world. I've devoted several episodes of the show to this, and when I say this, I mean the fact that proverbs which address life as a whole tend to have a apprehensive assessment of the goodness of life. When wise men speak of life, they tend to speak of life the way that you speak of a day at work. So I know there's a temptation when you hear someone like Kierkegaard or Nietzsche or... Confucius or Marcus Aurelius or really even Solomon, when you hear one of these men give an assessment of life, which is not a ringing endorsement, there's a temptation among modern Christians to say, well, that just doesn't seem very grateful. He's not grateful for life. Maybe he should have spent less life, less of his own life in a book and more time dancing and drinking with friends. Maybe the problem was he did not have a rich community. Maybe that's why Kierkegaard and Nietzsche were so sullen. They did not have robust communal fellowship with other people. I don't think this is true. though. Wise men speak of life the way that you speak of a day at work, the way that most people speak of a day at work, the way that most children speak of a day at school. When someone asks you, how was work? You say, this is the way that most people respond to how was work, how was your day? Uh, yeah, it was okay. That's the way most people respond to that question. How was work? Hmm, it's all right. And there's this very hesitant sort of sound that they make where it's like, oh, I don't know that I really want to answer that question. You don't want to know. How was work? Mm. And in the end, like if that's the way that you begin that response, how was work? Uh, you almost always end up saying something positive about it on the back end. But it's typically prefaced with this somewhat skeptical, maybe even cynical sort of sound. Mm. 
It was all right. That's the way that we answer that question. How was work? How was school? It's fine. <laughs> fine. Wow, doesn't sound fine. How was work? It was okay. Doesn't sound okay. That was not the okay sound. But this is when we're asked about work. When I see my friend, John, on Sundays, and we count the tithes and offerings together, I always ask him, how was your week? And he answers and he asks me, how was your week? And let alone assessing a day with that sound, how was your day? Hmm. When I'm asked, how was your week? Because we only see one, one another once a week. When I'm asked, when I'm asked how was your week? And some, it was all right. That's the way that I respond. A week, a week of life. How was your week? How was your week of life? How was your day of life? Whenever you put the word life on the end of it, and people aren't assessing a day, quote unquote, or a week, quote unquote, what do you say? How's life? People often want to give a positive sounding answer to that question. They feel embarrassed to him, I don't know. They feel embarrassed to do that because they want others to think, I enjoy my life, my life is very good, I'm content with my spouse, my children are well behaved enough. How's life? The sound that someone makes when you ask how's life is often this, it's often not, strictly speaking, it's not verbal, but it's this positive sounding Sort of, how was life? Mm, It's pretty good. Like, that's the way that you answer that question. Yeah, you know, things are going up. Things are going well. Things are rising. But we're caught off guard when we're asked about the day. The thing is, is how was your day? How was your week? How's life? These are all the same question. Life is measured in days and weeks. If you have friends that you only see once a year, even a year, we might get a little more reflective when asked, how did your year go? You might not make the same sort of discontent, cynical, skeptical sound when asked about your year, but you might. For friends that you only see once a year, or for friends that you only see a few times a year, but you always spend uh, New Year's Eve with them. So, how was your year? Still very hesitant sounding. It was good. We don't, we very rarely assess a day or a week the way that we assess a movie that we enjoy. Like, think about, hopefully, hopefully you know someone who saw Top Gun, the new one. You asked him, how was it? Everyone's seeing this movie, of course. How was it? Oh, it was really good. No one ever says that about a week or a, or a day. It's super rare. We'll say it about a movie. We'll say it about a Tom Cruise movie. How was that new Tom Cruise movie? Oh, very good. No one says that about a week. How was your week? Oh, very good. That's not the way that we talk about a week. 
But when we talk about a week, we're talking about life. So lest anyone make the sages and philosophers of the past who have this somewhat <laughs> sober assessment of life's value, lest anyone say, well, maybe their community's not that great. Maybe they're not enjoying robust Christian fellowship. Hang on here. When a philosopher talks about life, they're talking about their day. They're talking about the average day. That's what people are talking about when they talk about life. They're talking about the average day, the average day or week of work. It's amazing what incredibly long stretches of time we can, we can account for or assess with those discontented sounds. How was your week? How was your year? That's more than 1% of your life. For many people, a year is like, I don't know, like 1.3% of your life. And if you, if you measure what the average man makes of life by the way that he reports on days and weeks, I think you do get something closer to this middling assessment of how good life is. On a previous show, I said, I made the claim that the average philosopher would give life, life itself, like it's a new record getting a rating on Pitchfork, a 5.5 out of 10. That's the number that seems to reflect the average sage's account of life. If you're reading a proverb, a quote unquote proverb that assesses the goodness of life much higher than a 5.5, it's probably some inspirational garbage meme that you've just found. It's probably something that's being sold at Hobby Lobby. Those are the sorts of places, like the sort of message decoration, the kind of inspirational de decoration message that is now omnipresent among the American middle class. Those are the sorts of places where life is assessed incredibly highly. But taken all together, like this is the way that you start thinking of life when you have a sick child. When you have a sick child, a nine-year-old child who's sick, you start thinking of life and everything that's beyond the age of nine. All the food you'll eat, all the friends you'll have, all the friends you'll lose, all the standard experiences, excitedly losing your teeth at the beginning of your life, sadly losing them again at the end of your life, all the triumphs, all the failures, all the boring meetings you have to sit through, all the red lights, all the pangs of conscience, all the stuff that drives Hamlet nuts in the to be or not to be speech, all the beautiful things that you saw, all the sublime experiences that you had, all the sublime experiences you missed out on because of bad luck, take it all together, balance all together. Is life worth living? The average sage says, yeah, nothing north of that. And again, I think this is because the average wise man would tell you that if you credit life too much higher than a 5.5, there is too much pleasure in your life and you are too attached to this world and the things of this world. You love the world. If life is higher than a 5.5, you probably love the world and are connected to the world in dangerous ways. If you rank life too much lower than a 5.5, you're not grateful. 5.5 is sort of the safest, 
most stable, most productive way of assessing life. Which is why we say, again, previous episode, which is why we say life goes on to someone who has just suffered some mild pain. That's life. That's what we say to somebody who gets fired from their job. That's life. You wouldn't say that to somebody who experienced something absolutely wretched, like the death of a child. Mm, That's life. You wouldn't say that. Neither would you say that's life if a friend got a raise. Guess what? I got a 20% raise. Hey, 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 that's life. No one ever says that. When someone buys tickets to a movie and hires a babysitter and is going out with their wife and they get a flat tire and miss the movie, that's when you say, "Mm, that's life. That's, That's life. That's life is not a saying. It's a technical assessment that when you are missing a movie and paying a babysitter to watch your kids needlessly and you're on the side of the road trying to fix a tire in the rain, that is life. That is emblematic of life. That's where the expression that's life comes from. We only appropriate that's life to mild forms of suffering. 5.5. But that's also what today's proverb is about. He whom the gods love dies young means maybe my child is better off just not having to deal with any of this. When you sit down and think about all that is entailed By life, by adult life. Are there beautiful things about it? Absolutely. Is life worth living? Absolutely. But if you can get away with not having to do any of this, you might be better off. That's always, because that's always what we say. Maybe my child is better off not having to deal with all of this. Not, like if if your child dies, Or if your child is on the cusp of death and you're worried your child is going to die, you don't say, my child would be better off dying. You say, maybe my child would be better. Maybe it's better. If my child lives, they live. If they die, maybe it was better that way. Maybe not better for me, obviously, but better for them. Maybe becoming an adult is so painful that to just live through the good stuff of childhood and then to skip out on the rest of it, maybe that's not so bad. These are the things that you tell yourself. If you're upset, I'm sorry. This is the kind of stuff I tell myself when my children are sick. As a kind of amateur hypochondriac, I've had this conversation with myself many times. And you say my child, maybe my child would be better off having not to suffer all this. You say this because it's true. Christ says of Judas, it would have been better had he never been born. Which is different than saying it would have been better had Judas never existed. What Christ says is, would have been better if Judas had died young because you exist prior to birth. You exist in the womb. It would have been better had he never been born. Judas is not the, uh, Judas is not the only hypothetically better off stillborn in Scripture. There's another in Ecclesiastes. 
In Ecclesiastes, Solomon says that a stillborn child is better off than a rich man who lives for 2,000 years but does not enjoy what he has. The king who reigns for 2,000 years but cannot enjoy his prosperity would have been better off dying in his mother's womb. That's what Solomon says. Interestingly enough, Christ is willing to acknowledge better alternate realities. That is a metaphysical Gordian knot I am not going to attempt to unpack here or untie. But in Scripture, Christ does acknowledge that there are alternate realities that would be better than the one that we're in. And so when your child is sick, you go to this very sober place in your heart. And you consider all the misery, which even the best life entails. And you say, if my son lives, he lives, and life is good. And if he doesn't live, well, he's spared from all of this. And you look around the waiting room, and you see all the people who are dying, who are afraid to die, whose bodies are falling apart, whose loved ones' bodies are falling apart, and you say, if my beloved son didn't have to go through all of that, would it be so bad for him? Or just me? Could I bear it? What if I am asked to bear the loss of him so that he doesn't have to go through that? And the fact that he doesn't have to go through the miseries of life is really my only consolation in being separated from him before I really get to know him. And so we imagine our children, our sick seven and eight-year-old children, ascending to heaven and meeting God and God saying, this might be hard to accept, but you'll be happier this way. You have been spared much. And we think this not because we despise our lives, not because we're ungrateful, for our lives. Not because we want to end our lives and not to justify anyone else ending theirs. But we think this because the child who dies young never has to suffer his own child dying young. And in the torment of losing a child, we perceive a suffering that we undertake almost on behalf of the child. I will suffer this so you never have to. And we've all gone through this sort of realization before. We've had friends or classmates who missed out on a trip or a movie or a party or something. And we went and the whole thing was a disaster. And we come back and the friend who missed out on it says, how was it? And you say, you are lucky you didn't go. And they don't believe you. They're like, no, I don't accept that. 
I really wanted to go. However awful it was, I wish I was there suffering it with you. And they insist that they would have enjoyed it more than staying home. But really, only the people who went to the party know how truly bad it was. And there might have been a few bright spots in the party. And it might not have been a total bust. But if you didn't go, you were nonetheless spared much misery. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.